0: All month we've been talking about the birth of Jesus, and we're going to, uh, to end that series this morning with Christmas Day uh, coming up in just a couple of days. And before we uh, get into this final message, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, it is so striking for us when we sing to you to remember that Jesus, Lord, at thy birth, those lines from that great song. And we see so much of our world that is not able to, and one, for one reason or another, to recognize that. And so we pray, Father, that you will help us to be that light that shines in dark places, that you will help us to be that love that overcomes hate, that, that graciousness and generosity that overcomes the stinginess and, and the miserliness that we find all over this world. And we pray, Father, that we will be folks courageous to speak the words of truth to everyone we meet about the greatness of your gospel and what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. And as we think uh, again this morning on the greatness of his birth, we ask that you bless us with eyes and ears to discern, Father, this moment in history and to keep discerning it each and every day of our life, so that we are transformed more and more into the likeness of the one that was born of a virgin 2,000 years ago. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You know, you probably have heard this all your life. I've heard it a lot. A lot of people through history have said that timing timing is everything. I think everything is a little strong, and perhaps it goes a little far, but timing is pretty important. What is the difference between telling a joke well and telling a joke badly? It's timing, right? And when we think about, you know, places and timing, we never just say the right place. It's always the right place at the right, say it, time. Conversely, the other part is true as well, right? We can be at the wrong place at the wrong time. Now, ironically, they can both be the same moment. They can be the same moment. Ellen and I, as you know, we were married very young. Uh, She was 20, I was 21. Uh, One of us was pretty immature, and the other one was Ellen. (laughs) And uh, we were going to school, we were working full time. Um, I actually had gotten home before her one day at the place we were living, and so I just had this creative, creative idea that I was going to scare her. And so I'm... uh, uh, go into the bedroom and I slide under the bed, and i 'm just waiting for Ellen to come, and like i 'm under that bed for like fifteen minutes waiting for her to come, right and i 'm just dying laughing, and I just can 't wait for her to get home. So she comes home and she comes in the front door and I'm, mark i 'm home. No answer. She goes into the kitchen mark i 'm home, are you here? She, she figures out that i 'm not around, at least where she can see me, and she decides to go into the bedroom where she 's going to change into something more comfortable. And she made the mistake of getting too close to the bed. And um, just, just like a rattlesnake, these hands come out, my hands come out from under the bed and grab her ankles. You can imagine what happened. She starts screaming. She starts jumping up and down. I'm laughing so hard that I forget to let go of her ankles. And she nearly breaks my arms, banging them against the bed rails. True story. That really happened. I've always pondered that in that moment... Ellen thought that she was at the wrong place at the wrong time. But her husband, the immature one, was at the right place at the right time. To this day, every time I think about it, it cracks me up. Ellen, not so much. I'm probably going to get beat up when I get home. Here's a verse to ponder from the book of Galatians. Paul wrote, When the fullness of time had come, the fullness of time, Fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son born of a woman. What does that fullness of time mean? I mean, we know a lot about this time in which Jesus is being born. Uh, The people are in Israel, the exile has sort of ended, they're back in the land, but Rome is in charge. So what does it mean, the fullness of time? Does it mean that the people of Israel have become so united and so single-minded that they're going to be able to to do something great for God and maybe get Rome off of their their backs? Nothing could be further from the truth. Josephus tells us that Judaism during the time of Jesus was as fragmented as it had ever been in the history of the world. Josephus says that there were basically four Jewish philosophies at the time. There were more than that, but these were the major ones. The Sadducees. The Sadducees were the ones down in Rome. They were the, the they were the, the priestly class. They were the ones that were mainly the aristocrats, the, the rich people in Jerusalem. They didn't believe in an afterlife. They didn't believe in angels. They were okay with making you know, contracts with Rome and making money because this is all there was. They, were, they may not have been okay with Rome, but they were making it okay with Rome. And then there were the Essenes. Essenes were kind of this holiness movement out in the desert. There was probably a little group in Jerusalem, but they had given up on everything. They didn't want anything to do with the temple in Jerusalem. They, they wanted to go off into the desert and to be kind of this holiness sect by themselves. And then there were the zealots. The zealots didn't care for anybody else who disagreed with them. Basically, the zealots said, you know what? We've been talking and talking and talking and talking and thinking and thinking and thinking and thinking. Praying, 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 praying. Now it's time to get the swords and the spears and the shields. And they were ready to go to war. Even if it meant going to war against some of their own people. And then there were the Pharisees. We all know about the Pharisees. The Pharisees believed that that the prophets had been right that the prophets had said the reason that you went off into exile is because you weren't faithful. You didn't do Torah the way that Torah was to be done. And so now that the people have come back into the land, there's this group called the Pharisees that's saying, if we do everything according to Torah, if we do everything the way that God commanded it, then He will bless us by giving us the land back, He will remove Rome, and we will be happy, happy, happy. That was not the case, that they were so united that they could actually as one people move against Rome. Well, maybe another possible answer was that the common enemy, which was Rome, was maybe showing signs of weakness. The problem was there was a fellow by the name of Caesar Augustus who had come on the scene right after Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar had been kind of a dictator. Uh, uh, Caesar Augustus is now this emperor and probably the greatest, if not the greatest, emperor that Rome is going to see. And Rome is spreading its power throughout the world. Well, there's a third possible answer to explain what it meant by the fullness of time. And that is, there are some heroes that have come to light. There are some people that are going to rally the nation together. They're heroic. They have power. And then we read about Mary and Joseph, hardly heroic figures at all. Mary was a teenager. She was probably in middle school. Very young. Some of the scholars say that she was part of the Anawim movement or or sect in Judaism, which meant that she was part of this pious, poor group of Jews that were very dependent upon God, very dependent on, on God to take care of them on a daily basis. And there's Joseph. Joseph we hardly know anything about, next to nothing about him. A couple of traditions, we don't know which one is right. there's one tradition that says he was an old man. He was a part of the Zadokim, the the righteous righteous folk. And that as an old man, he had been pledged to marry. And that probably that's the reason he went off the scene so early is because he was old. We don't know. There's another theory that maybe he was just a young man. And you know he was called a carpenter, which is actually the word tectone in the original language, which actually means he's a worker with hard substances. Which meant that it was probably not only wood, but also with stone, which was the, the, the building material of, of, of uh, the favorite building material of the day. And up north of Nazareth, there's this little place called Sepphoris, which was in the middle of being reborn as a city. A lot of work being done, walking distance from Nazareth to Sepphoris. And maybe, just maybe, again, we don't know, it's all speculation. Maybe there was some kind of an accident that involved a boulder or a stone or a block. And that's one of the reasons why Joseph ends up disappearing off the text at such an early, early, early point in the Gospels. We don't know. What we do know is that the world looks very dark, and the world looks very bleak. And it is into this darkness that God begins to bring this light in the form of the sun. And what we know from the fullness of time passage is that this right time For God to send forth His Son was a very dark time in the world. Jesus had a best friend, and his name was John. We've talked about him before. John has a brother by the name of James. They're fishermen. They were also guys who liked to fight, and they were nicknamed by Jesus Boanerges, which means the sons of thunder. And you'll remember that in one of the Gospels, they go to Jesus because Jesus has been rejected by this, this village. And they go up to Jesus and they say, hey, do you want us to bring fire down from heaven to destroy this village? They liked to fight, and they were unafraid of a fight, and they thought that that's what it was all about. And Jesus, of course, rebukes them. The thing about John, it being the best friend of Jesus, is that he's not there just, you know, every once in a while. You know, they get together in the holidays when, you know, when the families could. John is with Jesus all the time. He's not there part-time. He's there 24-7. And he is so close to Jesus that Jesus, as he's up on the cross, he sees his mother. And he looks to John, who is there, and he tells John to look at his mom and to take care of her, to treat her as if she is his own mom. And that's what John does. He takes Mary in and treats her as if she's his own mother. And John, before that, had heard all of the teachings. He had seen the miracles. He had access to Jesus all the time to ask questions. And at the end of John's life, he has outlasted all of that. You know, he's the last man standing with that original entourage of disciples. Last man standing. And he's been exiled for all of his trouble. He's been exiled to this big rock out in the middle of the Aegean Sea called Patmos. And at the end of his life, he writes down in a couple of different forms what he had seen and what he thought about Jesus. And in his gospel, which is really him just writing the life of Jesus in a way to bring people to faith, the very beginning, in the first chapter he says, the true light, the true light, that gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Light was coming into the world. And he said there was another time in John chapter 9, after he had healed, uh, uh, as he was healing uh, a blind man, a man born blind, he said, I am the light of the world. This last Tuesday night, Ellen and I had been out running some errands and we decided on the way home that maybe we would stop and see some christmas lights and there's a pretty famous neighborhood in san antonio not too far about two blocks from where we live and everybody on the house uh, on the block just about has a house full of lights and that street was so lit up with all of the color, colors of those christmas lights that we were able to turn the lights off in the car and to drive down that street without any problem at all because the light had overcome that dark I think the Apostle John would have loved Christmas lights. And he writes again in that first chapter of his Gospel, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And for John, that light meant life. That light meant life. I mean, think about all of the things that John had seen. That he had not only brought healing... In such a special way. I mean, everybody thought you don't touch a leper because the leprosy will come to you. Jesus was able to touch them and His healing and wholesomeness and integrity of life would be able to be passed to them. He had not only seen the healing and the tossing out of demons, but He had brought life to so many. The widow of Nain's son in Luke chapter 7. Jairus' daughter in Luke chapter 8. In John chapter 11, the most famous of them all, the bringing of his friend Lazarus, back to dead from the dead. And John heard Jesus say to Mary, the grieving, the sister of Lazarus, who was grieving her brother's death, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And later he would say, in in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. What we've been talking about the last three weeks has been how a light has come into our world, not into just a dark world, but the world of darkness that is the human heart. And we've been saying things about what this birth of Jesus means. That if we want to understand what Christmas is all about, we have to understand this one word, this one word, grace. The grace is God doing all of the pain. God is doing all of the doing and we do all of the receiving. That the grace of Christmas is God in love through His Son Jesus giving us the one thing, the one thing, the one thing as a gift that we all need and desire. And that is life with God. And the reason that we need the incarnation story is because of the creation story. What looked like the wrong place at the wrong time became the fullness of time. The right place at the right time. The, the Christmas story is a story of grace that brings hope in the midst of hopelessness. I mean, sometimes we look at the world and we think, I, you know, I don't need to be saved. I've got everything going for myself. Well, let me tell you, if that's the way you think, you need to be saved from narcissism. You're not perfect. You need to be saved from yourself. And then there's materialism. I mean, so many of us, we just get on that hamster wheel. And what we do is just spin it, spin it, spin it, spin it, thinking that we're going to find purpose, we're going to find significance, and all we find is that we're just exhausted at the end of the day, and nothing is different. That God-shaped hole is still empty. There are all kinds of addictions. Not just the major ones that we think about when we hear the word addiction. But what about you know, folks who have traded in the kids for the job? There are those loops of destructive messages that we hear in our head and we play over and over and over again that we've heard all of our life from, from really terrible sources that remind us on a, daily, on a daily basis that we're not good enough, we're not special, we, 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 we're worth nothing, we'll never amount to anything, and we just hear those loops all over the world all the time, every day. And we need to be saved from what sinfulness is all about. It's about being off track. When it comes to being a human being, of being guilty, of doing that to ourselves, and then finally, you know, being saved from death itself. Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. And God Himself came into this world as life, as a human life, both human and God, but a human life, in order for us to understand firsthand that the universe is a loving place. That even though we have authored the, the destruction of so much of our own life and the decisions we've made, the way that we've treated people, the, the, the way that we use resources that have been given to us, that we've created so much badness in the world and, and so many mistakes that have hurt people, that there is a way in which we are being restored to what we were originally intended to be. To reflect that glory of God in whose image we have been made back into the world in such a way that it brings glory to God and it blesses the people around us. We're going to have a couple of shepherds down here at the front. And on this morning, as we've been thinking about the birth of Jesus, it's an opportunity for you to experience a birth as well. A new birth. A birth into the family of God. To become a son or a daughter of God in such a way that your life is completely transformed. It's not just about forgiveness. It's about becoming A new human being in the kingdom of God. And if that describes you this morning, these shepherds are going to be down here at the front. And for the rest of us, as they're coming down to speak to these shepherds, we want the rest of us to stand and to sing praise to God.